0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Over the last 100 years, buying and holding the stock market would have made you rich. But that doesn't stop people from searching for ways to juice their returns. From sectors, to factors, to weightings, there are many ways to tilt a portfolio. This week, we discuss seven
1: ways to slice the stock market. And in today's dumb question of the week, is Apple really an American company? All right, let's get into it seven ways to slice the stock market. If you think we've come up with this idea purely for the alliteration, you'd be half right. (laughs) I imagine speaking to all the people you do, you've seen a million and one ways to slice the stock market.
0: Yeah, because people are always trying to beat the market. You know, they always try and come up with some kind of magic formula or some kind of vain hope, I guess, that there's a foolproof way to do this. And what are
1: the ways you typically see people tilting their portfolios?
0: Well, there are accidental tilts. You know, so for example, many people have a big UK overweight. So your country-specific bias is something which is a bit insidious and may be in people's portfolios without them realising it. And then you get deliberate tilts. So people say, look, I think US tech is brilliant, so I'm going to buy a lot of tech. So they work in the tech industry, so that's what they do. Or if they're a doctor, they like pharmaceutical stocks. Uh, So, you know, there are are various ways of tilting it.
1: Have you yet discovered a way to do a sci-fi tilt, Roman?
0: Well, I'm living it, Michael. You know, that's why I buy Scottish Mortgage, because they've got some SpaceX in it. (laughs) I want to have a slice of that space action.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One day it'll pay off. Maybe, yeah. All right, let's get to the first of the seven ways of slicing the stock market. So we could slice the market mathematically. Now, what do we mean by this? Well, typically, if you buy an index fund, it's designed in such a way that it's market cap weighted, but it doesn't have to be. There's also the option of buying an equally weighted fund.
0: That's right. And in fact, one of the first index funds that was ever created, and this is from a book by Robin Wigglesworth, who writes FT Alphaville. So the book's called Trillions. Now, this was created by Wells Fargo Investment Advisors, and this was 1971, The plan was to invest an equal amount of money in each of the 1,500 or so stocks listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And I think they did this for a pension fund for Samsonite. However, it was a bit of a disaster. It never really took off. And that's because of the practicalities of an equal weighted index. Now, remember, at the time, they didn't have computers. So it was a real bookkeeping exercise to keep track of exactly what stocks to buy, how much to buy. So let me just quote from Robin's book. Stocks move around all the time, so the Samsonite fund had to be constantly rejigged so that an equal amount of dollars would be invested in each stock. As a result, the trading costs were high and the record keeping was arduous. And inevitably they folded the fund in 1976 and moved it into an S&P 500 market cap weighted tracker.
1: Yeah, and the point you mentioned there, we didn't have computers at the time. Well, We do have computers now, so we can probably look at it and say, taking the administration off the table as a problem. Does it make sense to equal weight the index? Because if you think about it, just step back from this whole thing, why does market cap weighting make sense? Why would I put more money into the stocks that are in some ways more
0: successful or more expensive even? So let's do a really simple thought experiment where we've just got two stocks in an index. One goes up by 5%, one falls by 2%.
1: What, and they started level.
0: Yeah, let's say they started level. What we'd have to do for an equal weighted index is to buy some of the stock which fell and we'd have to sell some of the stock which rose. Yeah,
1: rebalancing basically.
0: And it, you'd have to do that every day. You don't have a choice. And every stock moves every day. Now let's imagine that we have a market cap weighted index. Well, if no new money flows in or out of the fund, we don't have to do anything. Because the fact that the price has moved will be in line with their market capitalization.
1: Yeah, it's doing our job for us, isn't it?
0: Yeah, so you literally don't have to do anything. So you can see why that's very easy to manage and why the costs are low, because there's hardly any trading involved unless money flows in and out. That means that the tracking error is also smaller. Now that's the difference between the index weight and your funds weight. So all of the bookkeeping's easier, even though it's done on computers, as you say, <laughs> and the cost is lower. So less trading is involved as well.
1: Yeah, you do see that, don't you? So the market cap weighted typical S&P 500 funds say you can get for almost zero fee, or I think actually zero fee in America now. Whereas an equal weighted index fund, the fee
0: is still around, I think, 0.2%. So it's a significant difference. And if you think about what you're actually doing, compared to a market cap weighted benchmark, you've got a huge tilt away from those mega caps. So instead of Apple making up, say, 5% of any index, you're talking about Apple making up, you know, one 500th of the index if it's an S&P equal weighted tracker.
1: Yeah. So it's effectively a tilt towards small caps or the smaller of the large caps in the case of the S&P 500
0: and a massive tilt. You imagine those tiny, tiny companies, their market cap is just tiddly compared to the likes of Apple. So huge tilt to small caps, huge tilt away from large caps, which in certain conditions will do really well. Yeah. So that's the question, isn't it? What does the performance look like?
1: We might have a higher cost for the trading of an equal weighted fund, but does it actually outperform? Like, is there a reason why holding more of the big stocks should be better?
0: Now, nobody understands really why this is the case, but there is a premium for small caps, in other words, an outperformance, which is quite well documented. It stretches back for decades. One of the explanations is that small markets or small cap markets are less efficient. And that's because large fund managers simply can't buy those stocks. Otherwise, they'd have to buy, you know, like 50 percent of the company. Yeah, it's an illiquidity premium. Am I right? That's an alternative way of looking at it. These things trade less, so you can earn a premium because they're very illiquid, and that boosts the return. But if we're looking at the S&P 500, I think
1: every stock in that index is a large cap, more or less, and very, very liquid, no?
0: Yeah, compared to other markets, that's certainly true. So if you've got an equal-weighted EM index or some tiny little market, then yeah, it would be much more expensive to track that index.
1: So I came across a good paper by S&P Dow Jones Indices called Concentration Within Sectors and Its Implications for Equal Weighting. Now, that sounds like it's going (laughs) to exactly answer our question, Ramin, and it kind (laughs) of does. So this is a great paper by Ganti and Lazara. And what it says is, history suggests that there is a relationship between concentration and the relative performance of equal weighting. And it goes on, after peaks in the S&P 500 concentration, the S&P 500 Equal Weight Index tends to outperform. So firstly, what do we mean by concentration here?
0: So that's the percentage of an index which is tied up in the largest stocks. And if you have just a few mega caps, then that's typically what you see. And historically, there have been periods when that's happened. We've just been in that period, haven't we? Exactly. So the FANG stocks is what everybody talks about. So Facebook Amazon, Apple, Alphabet.
1: You missed out Netflix, but I wouldn't have even included them anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Microsoft might be another one. But when you do get these periods of really high concentration, it doesn't usually last. Usually there's something that happens and then the shine fades from those particular group of stocks.
1: And we've basically seen that, haven't we, over the last year? Their concentration has started to come down. To use your phrase, it's mean reverting.
0: It is. It is. And it, it is a variable which is mean reverting. You wouldn't expect to have all of the market in just a few stocks. That's just kind of crazy. So this paper says that an equal weight index tracker
1: is better to hold in that situation when you've got high concentration. I guess because
0: it has less money invested in those big companies. Exactly. And as you move away from that concentration, clearly it's going to outperform as the mega caps underperform and as the small caps outperform by definition. So it'll be the mid caps and the small caps that benefit from this.
1: And what was interesting in this paper is it showed that that effect applies not just to the market as a whole, but also within each sector. So you could look and say, okay, information technology is super concentrated, therefore an equal weighting in information technology might be appropriate. Or you could say, you know, I don't know, energy has a very low concentration compared to its history right now, therefore a market cap weighting is better for that sector. So if you have this clue, you could kind of start to bias your portfolio and outperform the broad market. Maybe. Like the stats show that it's possible.
0: So I guess you could do it within sectors, you could do it within countries, or within any index. You could go for an equal weighted version of it. I guess there's a couple of other things to note
1: if you're buying an equal weighted version of the broad market, is that it dramatically changes the sector weights in the index, right?
0: So information technology for the S&P as a whole is almost 28% versus 15% in the equal weighted index. And a boring sector like industrials makes up only about 8% of the S&P 500, but just under 14% for the equal weighted version of the index.
1: Yeah, so it kind of tends to flatten out the distribution between sectors, I guess.
0: Which is a good thing, probably.
1: Yeah, I mean, it depends, doesn't it, on which sectors are doing well. So if you held the equal weighted index, you will have underperformed over much of the last decade, I guess, because you weren't as heavily in IT, which was doing so well. But now over the last year, you'll have been doing much better. So I've got a graph here actually going from 2013. And you do see that. So the equal weighted S&P tracker is, yeah, significantly underperforming the market cap version all the way up until the peak at the end of 2022. And then over the last year, they've come back into line. (laughs) So maybe that's the lesson that over the long term, there's not a huge difference. It's just, if you look at it, the volatility of the equal weighted fund is often higher.
0: And that's a psychological problem. I think if people don't like drawdowns or underperformance, then sticking with that strategy would be very difficult for a decade. But why is the
1: volatility higher? Is it just because small caps or smaller caps are more volatile?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, if you plot the volatility of stocks versus the size of the stock, there's a very clear negative relationship. So small caps, large volatility, a rough ride, very scary. Whereas large caps tend to have a lower volatility and still scary, but less so. Yeah,
1: everything's scary in the stock world at some point or another. But let's just put some numbers on that. So S&P have shown that for the five years up to 2022, the annualized standard deviation for the equal weighted version is 17.6%, whereas for the market cap weighted version, it's 15.4%. So, yeah, there's over 2% difference
0: but the other thing I guess you'd worry about would be crashiness. And if you plot the size of the drawdowns for small caps, I'd suspect they'd be bigger. I mean, that's what's really difficult is holding on through those drawdown periods when you get really large faults.
1: I guess my question here would be, we always talk about how market timing is you know, basically impossible. No one can do it reliably. But is the implication of this and the impact of concentration on the relative performance of small versus large cap Not saying, oh, maybe there is a kind of market timing which you can do, which is to dance in and out of equally weighting or market cap weighting sectors, for instance, when their concentration is high or low relative to the historic average.
0: Yeah, maybe you could do it. It just happens very infrequently. So the last time it was concentrated was just during the dot-com bubble. All of the money was flowing into just a handful of tech stocks and that sector just ballooned. So, yeah, I mean, he could have done that. And, you know, if you're a value investor, you do do that. You know, you'd have moved away from those very expensive stocks.
1: I guess the way I think of it is that things can stay stupidly concentrated for a long time right the S&P 500 concentration has been very high for a long time and you would have been trying to hold your equal weighted index which is underperforming while you know Apple and Google are flying to the moon and you'd only own a small (laughs) slice of them and you'd have probably given up and gone into the market weighted fund at exactly the wrong time. (laughs)
0: Yeah 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 I mean look Warren Buffett underperformed during that period of time the dot-com bubble and again in 2022 and then you know when things bust eventually then you do have this mean reversion but it's a really painful trade and it's also the fact
1: that the equal weighted index is going to tend to outperform when concentration is decreasing and that tends to be in the kind of market crash environment so you're really going to only outperform in the crashes You're still going to have a negative return, but it's just going to be less negative than the broad market. So you might not feel that good about it anyway. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not like you're going to soar away.
0: I've only lost 30% and I would have lost 50,
1: yeah. Yeah, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? Like, psychologically, it's not the most fun way to invest, probably. Okay, so I think we've done mathematically as a slice, but let's talk about the second way to slice the stock market, which is that you could slice it geographically. So you often hear of the distinction between developed
0: markets and emerging markets and some people go for single countries as well so there are single country etfs now so it's very easy to build up a portfolio country by country or by region that's another way to do it so we have the usual regional grouping so it'd be north america that's very dominant then we've got apac and then you can slice it two ways so you could have developed asia pacific and then em asia pacific
1: it's too many countries, isn't there?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs>
1: it was much easier when there was the USSR.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but it's interesting if you do that geographic weighting and just plot a map of the countries which are involved in an all country world index. Really, it's just the countries which are rich, which are involved. And so that's, you know, North America, Europe, Australia, and now China and India, and of course, Japan. But a lot of the world is just grey. Most of Africa, most of South America, Greenland, of course.
1: <laughs> what, there's about six people that live there, a load of huskies.
0: <laughs> I want a Greenland index. <laughs> They've got a lot of
1: natural resources. Do you remember when Trump tried to buy Greenland off Denmark?
0: <laughs> <laughs> We've got distracted, but
1: that was amazing.
0: It was funny. But yeah, I mean, geographic slicing is another way to do it. And here I think it's difficult for retail investors to outperform because imagine the difficulty with choosing single stocks, but now you're kind of applying it to countries. So you'd have to monitor what news flow you've got from each country and then think about currency maybe. So again, I think it's difficult for individual investors to actually keep track of that.
1: I reckon this is the most common tilt in a portfolio though. Like Roman, even you, your tilt, intentionally or not, is geographic. So you hold... Developed Markets X as your core stock fund.
0: Well, this is one of my gripes with Vanguard UK, which is they didn't give me any choice. You know, I'd have gone for a global one. They have a global fund. (laughs) Yeah, but I wanted accumulation. I wanted a low fee.
1: No, you just didn't want to pay the fee for them to track
0: all the emerging markets.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just being cheap and saying they gave me no choice.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but, right. So HSBC has a fund which does that for 0.13%. It's global. It's got the UK. It's got EM. What's the catch, though?
1: I think it doesn't have many small caps in it, I think is the catch.
0: I can live with that. <laughs> but for 0.13, that's pretty good. Why can't Vanguard do that? They can do it in the US. They can do it for 0.08 in the US, the Vanguard Total Market Index.
1: But seriously, though, do you think holding that fund X uk and X emerging markets is going to make a significant difference to your long-term returns?
0: Well, UK not, I don't think, because the UK only makes up 4% anyway. So you would have to outperform or underperform hugely to make any difference. EM, I think, will make a bigger difference, certainly over the long term. So I think if somebody's young and they're doing index investing for the first time, they're going to hold an index for decades. For them, I think excluding EM would probably be a mistake, because I think probably a lot of the growth will come from EM over that kind of period. But for me, you know, I've got a lot of grey hair. It's not going to make a big difference for me.
1: Are you not worried about having, I don't know, was it 70% in the US market when it does look one of the more expensive markets in the world?
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about that because I've had this conversation with many people recently, which is, you know, the US has a very expensive currency and it's hugely outperformed and it's very expensive compared to the rest of the world. So there are a lot of reasons why you might expect tilting away from the US now would be a good idea or at least just sterling hedging your US exposure if you're UK based. But there's a lot more work involved. And you know I'm not willing to put in the extra work to do that. And whenever I've come up with one of these clever schemes, when something's obvious, immediately something happens to make it all a complete waste of time. You know, COVID or (laughs) there'll be something that happens that makes this kind of tilt away from the US not work.
1: I guess it's really hard to work out which country or region is going to outperform the others over the next decade, say. I mean, you can look at things like valuation and price to earnings ratio for different markets,
0: but I wonder if that is that indicative. There are some backtests that people have done. So Meb Faber, who also runs a podcast called The Meb Faber Show, and he's also got a great website and he's published a book which is free, which looks at returns long-term He's actually back tested it and he's come up with a strategy where essentially you just choose the cheapest countries and hold them. And he says that outperforms. I tried to do the back test to reproduce them and there wasn't that much difference <laughs> as far as I could tell. But but yeah, people say that if you buy cheap countries versus expensive, that that should outperform.
1: I mean, when you think about it, it probably should, right? If you buy things that are cheap and hold them for a long time and you believe in mean reversion then yeah, you should outperform just holding everything regardless. But I don't know. We always talk about the problem with it needs a lot of discipline because yeah. our can persist for a long time. And it probably adds cost because you're putting more money maybe into liquid markets.
0: So over the last decade, the US has outperformed every other country. So holding on to that belief that you shouldn't have too large US exposure would have been difficult during that decade and also very expensive.
1: I've often wondered whether this breakdown of the world stock market is into just developed markets and emerging markets. does that even make sense anymore? I kind of see it in four different breakdowns, which is the US and the rest of developed markets, so you know Japan, UK, Europe, and then China and the rest of emerging markets. Those four buckets
0: are all quite separate, I think. No, I agree, and I think China doesn't really fit into the EM category. You can't compare China with some other EM countries. You know, it's nothing like Brazil. It's nothing like Russia. Yeah, and I think the same about the US. It's
1: quite distinct from the rest of developed markets,
0: largely because it has the Fed, right? <laughs> yeah, and it has such large economic clout, you know, when you compare the size of the US economy with anywhere
1: else. And just far fewer compunctions around fully embracing a market economy.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, Spike Milligan always used to say that the US isn't a country, it's a company. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, well, let's move on to the
1: third way to slice the stock market, which is that you might want to slice it stylistically. Now, here I'm talking about value versus growth, the classic tilting for any investor.
0: But these aren't the only ways you can choose factors. There are lots of others you can use. So another one might be quality. That's another factor which people invest in. And one which I kind of like, where you buy more of the stocks which have very strong balance sheets, not too much debt, good earnings growth. So it's a kind of filter which you apply to the index as a whole. But value and growth is a kind of classic one. Value, you buy cheap stuff. Growth, you buy stuff which is aggressively growing its earnings and its stock price, hopefully. Are value and growth literally just opposites of each other? There's very little overlap. So you don't get many value stocks, which are also growth stocks. It's very unusual to find that. It's possible, but eventually growth stocks can become value stocks. So take an example, Facebook, which is now Meta, unfortunately became a value stock. But, you know, I'm sure they don't want to be a value stock. But at a certain point, if your market cap grows hugely you just become one of the big shambling monsters on the index and you can't grow as quickly as you did historically.
1: So here's what I've never really understood about this distinction, value versus growth. The claim is that both of these factors have outperformance, right, in the long term if you held them. But if they're opposites of each other, how can they both outperform? Or is it just that there's a load of stuff in the middle which you don't want to own? It's okay to own the really cheap ones and the really growthy ones. I don't know.
0: Well, if you look at the Pharma-French data which they publish on Kenneth French's website, you've actually got data going back to 1926, and the one which has outperformed is value. Now, over the last decade or so, since 2008, since the global financial crisis, that's the period when growth has outperformed. So we had, you know, 120 years when value outperformed. And then suddenly, if you look at the graph, you see it starting to fall relative to growth. So growth has simply had a bit of a mad decade. And I suspect we're going back to value outperformance now.
1: It has started to outperform over the last year, hasn't it, value? Yes, it has. But will that persist? Is there any way to know that?
0: Well, there is no way to know. And there's no way to know which factor is going to outperform. Because there's no reason why a certain style would outperform.
1: Shouldn't the market be efficient and sort of get rid of any outperformance? Like if value was outperforming consistently, people would go into value and it would no longer be cheap,
0: right? Yeah, that's right. So if there are enough ETFs tracking the value style of investing, then eventually that'll erode the outperformance. I think that probably won't happen anytime soon. I don't think enough people buy into value because it's had such an awful decade.
1: Yeah, I mean, we need to erode the underperformance to begin with, we?
0: <laughs> We're still
1: not there yet. I guess my question around these style factors is, do they make sense to hold in your core portfolio if you really believed in one? Like, Would you replace your global stock tracker with a global value stock tracker?
0: I'd certainly consider it. I mean, things like quality are less crashy than growth, say, and less crashy than value, even. So they're attractive from that point of view, because psychologically, I think it's easier to stick with quality. And quality makes intuitive sense. I think you've got to believe in whatever you buy. Now, quality, you know, obviously, you want to buy good companies with a high return on equity or whatever, you know, there are various ways to measure this. But I think if you believe in the actual tilt, it helps a lot. Whereas just cheap makes you think, well, you know, it's cheap because nobody wants it because it's out of fashion or it's badly run. Yeah, I guess that's the point
1: with value, isn't it? Is that stocks can be cheap because they're unloved. Maybe they were in the energy sector and no one wanted dirty oil companies. Fine, they're going to mean revert and come back, maybe. Or they could be cheap because they're just really bad companies and (laughs) they go into the wall eventually, right?
0: uh, This is why I also like the approach, which is to say you combine two different factors. It could be momentum. Momentum is another factor which we didn't talk about, but things which are going up. But things which are going up, which are also value stocks, you know, that could be interesting because, you know, they've come out of the doghouse and they've kind of come back into the sunlight and they're going to do well, for example. So, you know, I think these kind of combinations of different styles might be the way to go.
1: Okay, so that's factors. And then the fourth way to potentially slice the stock market is you could do it sectorally. So there are lots of different sectors within the market. We've mentioned IT, we've mentioned energy, but there are a lot more. And the idea here is that you might think, oh, one is going to really outperform,
0: or a group of them. And if you get that right, yeah, you can outperform the broad market. I think the difficulty here is that you have to kind of know which economic state you're about to move into. So if you know you're going into recession, then you'd buy defensives, things like utilities, maybe healthcare, consumer staples, things which people have to buy despite having less money. And if you know you're coming out of a recession, if you could call the bottom, then you'd buy cyclicals. So you'd buy financials, maybe technology consumer discretionary. You know, these are the ones which would do well if you're coming out of a recession. But the difficulty is always is you don't have a crystal ball and you don't know whether we're actually entering a recession. That's the difficulty right now, I think, is that
1: this maybe recession we're about to have is
0: probably the most (laughs) most forecasted recession
1: ever. And I would love it if it didn't happen.
0: (laughs) With so many tweets saying things like, you know, this is the most bullish recession ever. You know, they just show the retail numbers and everybody's going out to restaurants and they're buying stuff. So despite all of the bad news, people are still doing things which suggest they don't feel like they're in a recession.
1: It's so weird. Like there's a real confliction in the data. So I saw that consumer sentiment in the UK, like when you ask people on the street about how they're feeling about the economy, is the worst it's been on record, I think, like worse than 2008
0: but then you look at the retail figures, like you say, people are spending. <laughs> like They don't believe what they've just told the survey. And until there is a, an actual fall in activity, then you know, there's not going to be a recession. And if employment is very high, which it is all across the developed world, then you know, it's very difficult to get a recession with full employment. That's the thing.
1: Isn't a recession actually a rise in unemployment? Isn't that kind of what a recession is?
0: Well, in the US, that works really, really well. That's why the Sam Rule works almost perfectly in the US. It's the rate of increase of unemployment in the UK. I tried to create a UK Sam Rule, and it didn't work so well here.
1: You wanted your own page on the Bank of England website, didn't you? The Roman Rule, the
0: Nikita Rule. Yeah, I like it.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the math <laughs> didn't work. <laughs> Sadly, no. <laughs> but that's the whole point with sectors, isn't it? It's effectively
0: trying to time the market, I guess,
1: because it does align so much with the business cycle.
0: And again, you could use some kind of concentration criterion to decide when to get out of certain sectors and into others. Or you could say, you know, I'm going to do something based on top-down information, based on my beliefs about the economy. You know, maybe you could boost your returns through the cycle, if you could call it right. But it's a lot of work. And I think it's not easy for someone who has a busy day life to kind of come home from work and say well, this is what I think the macro outlook looks like. And investment banks get it wrong all the time. So I wouldn't feel bad about not doing it.
1: Yeah, this is a tilt I'd be quite reluctant to take, I think, in my core portfolio, just because I don't know if anyone can call it.
0: But it's interesting. I mean, there's also a kind of CAPE version of index funds where Robert Schiller's teamed up with Barclays. And what they do is they buy sectors which are cheap and they avoid sectors which are expensive using the Schiller ratio for that sector.
1: Is that to do with price to earnings, is it?
0: Yeah, so this is how much you pay for a sector compared to the profits which it generates. And so if it looks expensive on that basis, you keep away from it. But it has done pretty well. I mean, not incredibly well. It underperformed, of course, during the kind of huge run-up. Now it's doing better.
1: I guess that seems to be the common thread with all the different tilts we've discussed so far, whether it's the weightings or the geography or the styles and factors and the sectors, is that if you'd done things rationally by looking at what's kind of cheap or unloved, over the last decade, you would have underperformed the market as IT soared away in America. But then you would have turned around and over the last year you've started doing well. Are these all different ways of making the same bet?
0: Well, this is another problem, which is that you get a kind of dimensionality reduction when things are highly correlated. Because another way to look at markets is in a low dimensional market, everything moves up and down together. That usually happens during a crisis. Okay, Robin, you've used the word
1: dimensionally, which is causing me a problem because the fifth way to slice the stock market I'd come up with was dimensionally. (laughs) And this was just a way to try and say small cap versus large cap. Something to do with the size of the companies. And I also wonder, does this small cap versus large cap thing actually capture enough? Like, shouldn't there be a whole other category of the mega cap?
0: Yeah, for example, we've seen the rise of trillion dollar companies over the last year or so or two years. Tesla was in that category for a while. As we make this podcast, it's out of that club. So it's only worth about $653 billion. So below the trillion it was. But, you know, you've got companies like Apple, which are well inside the trillion dollar club.
1: Because it seems to me that mega caps move in a slightly different way to your bog standard large cap. Like if we call everything in the S&P 500 a large cap.
0: Yeah, when we compare it to other markets, it's crazy. You know, the market cap of Apple's $2.4 trillion, bigger than or at least comparable to the entire UK stock market. So small cap for the US is probably large cap when you compare it to the UK. But I agree, I think these things are kind of sui generis. They're kind of their own thing. Because I remember
1: reading something a while ago, and I'm not sure if the numbers stack up, where someone was saying that you could outperform the S&P 500 Over decades, I think they look back to the 50s, if you just bought S&P 499 and excluded the biggest company in the index always because (laughs) they don't always remain the biggest company in the index and they underperform over the long term. I don't know if that still checks out, but it kind of makes intuitive sense that once you get so big, then you can't keep growing at the pace of the broad market.
0: But again, this is the mean reversion thing, right? which is that when you have this huge concentration, eventually it's going to change. If you go back in time to the last bubble, so 2000, the largest five companies, I mean, some of them are familiar, like Microsoft, but some of them aren't. You know, like Cisco Systems was also huge. It wasn't far behind Microsoft. It was about 5% of MSCI USA.
1: Yeah, in a way, Cisco is kind of the archetype of the dot-com bubble, is in that it was massively overvalued. It's a good company. It's still done well, but it had a huge drawdown and it's just slowly (laughs) recovering since that point because it was just massively overvalued.
0: Yeah, and same with Intel. Intel was really dominant at that time because, you know, they were such a dominant player in the semiconductor industry. But of course, other countries and other companies have taken the mantle from it since then. So certainly you you get these concentrations that build up, but the winners from the past will never be the winners of the future. It's very unusual to see that.
1: So what do you think about betting on small caps versus large caps over the long term?
0: I think if I was going to do it, I'd do it based on one of these combinations. You know, I'd go for small cap value because that's the one that's historically done very, very well and very consistently, except for the last decade. This episode should just be called Except for the Last Decade. <laughs> yeah,
1: everything was different <laughs> after 2008. But haven't you been buying US small cap without a value tilt in your fund portfolio?
0: Yeah, it was in my fund portfolio. So I think I just looked at the valuations and they were so low. It was like 2008. And that's actually done okay since I did it. But of course, there's been a big kind of small cap rally yeah. back to those kind of meme growthy growth-y stocks.
1: And I think often the difference when you're looking at a broad index fund, and you're like, well, why is this one a bit more expensive than this one? Why is the return slightly different? The difference is usually the amount of small caps they've got in the index, which are obviously more expensive to track and may have different performance versus the mid and the large caps.
0: Yeah, so you can decompose those returns based on these dimensions. That's always interesting to do. How much small cap has it got? How much large cap has it got? Does it tilt away from market cap weighting? And if so, in which way? What's the sectoral weighting? You know, have they gone for whatever industry they work in? They usually have an overweight in that industry.
1: Which is weird, right? Because you're already exposed to that industry through your career. Like if you work in the tech sector and then there's a big tech recession and you are potentially at risk of losing your job, you don't want to be overexposed, surely, to the same tech stocks in your portfolio because they might be crashing at the same time, right? You've just concentrated your kind of life risk. Or am I just overthinking this?
0: No, 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 that's absolutely right. And I think people who I speak to in the energy sector often have lots of energy share options. But usually they're quite keen to get rid of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the tech companies, usually if somebody has a tech company, they're quite willing to have that exposure because they still believe it'll persist into the future.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a recency bias, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And I think familiarity is the kind of bias we're talking about here.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, if a lot of your compensation from your employment is in the form of stock options. There's kind of two schools of thought, isn't it? It's one, you believe in your company, you get paid in that stock and you just hold it while you're working there. But there's a whole other kind of person who receives that stock compensation and immediately sells it and diversifies into the broad market. What do you think about those two approaches?
0: I think the latter one is probably the best way to go because, you know, you don't want that additional exposure probably. It's not about loyalty. It's really more about risk. I think if you have that very large tilt, then eventually it's going to come unstuck.
1: Okay, so let's go to the sixth way to slice the stock market, which I've called distributionally, which is really just looking at the dividend yield. So a lot of people have this idea of dividend investing, where they will buy stocks which are paying high dividends every year.
0: And it's just the discretion of the company as to whether they pay out their profits to their shareholders and you can capture it with a number called payout ratio. How much is a percentage of your profit do you pay back to your shareholders? Now, this is the UK's party trick, which is that it has very high payout ratios historically.
1: Do you come across a lot of people who are into this dividend investing idea where they think it's advantageous to go for companies who are paying a big dividend?
0: Oh, absolutely. And people have kind of come back to it recently after the growth implosion last year. And of course, it's a value tilt because if dividends high, that means that the company price is probably low compared to its profits and its dividends.
1: Yeah, because you're measuring dividends sort of as a proportion of their profits. Exactly. So it's kind of cheap by definition, I guess.
0: Yeah. And certainly it's done very well recently. The UK's in the unusual position of being one of the best performing indices, if you look at the FTSE 100 at least, over the last year or so. You know, I think overall, people at the moment like dividends because they kind of feel let down by growth. And the argument is that if stocks are going to be fairly moribund, in other words, there's not going to be much capital gain. While you wait, why not generate some income?
1: Oh, yeah, I can see that argument. There's an interesting paper, again, from S&P Dow Jones, which looked at high dividend-paying stocks and when they tend to outperform. And it is in the down markets. So if you look at the graphs, it's quite clear that dividend-paying stocks massively underperform when the market's rising and massively outperform when the market's going down.
0: Yeah, because there's a confounding factor here, which is growth versus value. So value does well, and you get this kind of degree of convexity. Convexity is what people call something which falls less than other things in a down market. It's a fancy way of saying the same thing. But you do get this kind of convexity when you buy something which is paying out a high dividend. That's what we should have called this podcast, a
1: fancy way of saying the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it brings us to the seventh of our seven ways to slice the stock market,
0: which is morally now, we've done an episode about ESG. It's not easy being green. And I think we kind of discredited the idea that ESG was a good idea. Well, I think we
1: said a few things, right? We said there's no objective way to define it to begin with. So if you look at the different ESG indices, they all hold quite different stocks. There's themes like they tend to underweight energy, for example, for obvious reasons. But within them, the companies that they favour and disfavour are often different.
0: I agree that there's no kind of objective truth when it comes to morals, so it's very hard to make that judgment. But if you do have a really clear idea of which goals you favour, if it's clean energy, for example, then you can buy funds which explicitly favour those companies.
1: Yeah, I guess when we've discussed it before, the cynic in both of us says this is primarily a marketing technique. And at its heart, our issue has always been that it doesn't really seem to drive capital allocation too much.
0: Maybe, you know, in the primary market, it could. So if people are just about to issue new stocks, it may be difficult to get capital if you're an oil producer, for example. But in the secondary market, when you're just buying stocks from somebody else, then it's difficult to make the argument that that makes a big difference.
1: And certainly over the last year or so, we've seen sort of anti-ESG companies, oil companies, for instance, massively outperforming. So if you were heavily ESG weighted, you'll have suffered.
0: But I think one of the things that I see which really annoys me is when people talk about things like standing outside Vanguard's offices or BlackRock's offices saying, you know, you're buying all these energy stocks, when in fact, you know, it's just an index company. They don't have any moral stance on it at all.
1: Well, you say that, but Vanguard is just launching ESG fund after ESG fund at the moment. <laughs> like, ESG versions of pretty much everything they
0: sell. In the UK, yeah. And I think that's a mistake. I think that that fad has kind of already a bit in the dust.
1: Vanguard's always a bit late to the party, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's
1: their thing. They're like at the church. (laughs) (laughs) They're 20 years behind everything else. Or 100 years, yeah. But we've been cynical. But I don't want to be too cynical. Like, I think morals and ethics should come into our investing. It's just whether this is the right way of doing it. Like, I wouldn't want to give capital to Russia right now, for instance. And that's an ethical decision
0: in a way. And there are other things. For example, some of these large index companies are pushing back against huge pay rises for the CEO. And for the senior management of companies, the compensation between those senior managers and the actual staff has just gone to crazy levels, which is simply not justifiable. So there, I think the pushbacks kind of justified, and I applaud it. And the other interesting thing, which is a new development, certainly for Vanguard in the US, of course, not in the UK, is the ability to do direct indexing, where you can say, look, these are the criteria I want make an index that achieves those criteria. So if I wanted small cap value with an ESG tilt, but which includes nuclear, because I'm a physicist and I think nuclear is okay.
1: Finally, you've built your sci-fi (laughs) fund.
0: Why not? I'd want a nerdy tilt as well. So anything which sounds a little bit space age, I want in there. So I could have that index. Effectively, you can kind of roll your own ETF.
1: Yeah, I guess I just said, oh, Vanguard are behind the times, but maybe in the direct indexing space, they are going to be closer to the forefront. So they purchased JustInvest and its direct indexing platform called Kaleidoscope in 2021. So I think they do see this is where it's going to go and that the assets in completely passive funds may start to dwindle over time, but they won't necessarily be going back to the active managers. They might be going to, yeah, your own bespoke quasi-passive fund, this direct indexing idea.
0: It kind of blurs the line, doesn't it, between active and passive. But it's passive in the sense that, you know, once you set the goals, it's kind of predetermined.
1: Okay, so we've covered the seven different ways to slice the stock market, which are all sort of tilting variations on the broad market and angling your portfolio in one way or the other. How would you sum all this up, though, when you're thinking about, okay, what should I actually hold in my core portfolio for the long term, based on the stats and the data, but also what I believe?
0: All I'd say is don't go overboard with any of these tilts. And if you are looking at your own portfolio, this is a great way to slice it and say, have I taken too much of a tilt in any one direction? And is that what I truly believe? Because often I think a lot of these tilts are accidental. So try and avoid them. Everyone has their own favorite tilt towards a particular style or a particular sector. Now, if you want to discuss this with other people, then why not join our community? To learn more about joining us, just go to PensionCraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week.
1: Is Apple really an American company? So this actually comes from one of our listeners and a PensionCraft member called Vincent. And he said, why would you count Apple as American when only about 50% of its revenue or profits come from this region?
0: I guess you could say this is any large cap or mega cap, as we call them in this episode which is that they can't get their revenue from only the U.S. because there just aren't enough customers in one country.
1: Isn't the whole point that these kind of companies are called multinationals? So there's kind of the recognition that, yeah, they're not just an American company, really.
0: Yeah, they don't have a choice. You know, they just couldn't sell enough stuff to enough people if they stayed in one country. And obviously
1: they have subsidiaries around the world. But they are an American company. Their leadership is American. They were founded in America They make their key corporate and design and R&D decisions in California.
0: So I guess this is kind of like the corporate version of the ship of Theseus. Okay, you've lost me. (laughs) Lost the ship of Theseus. Well, this is a kind of paradox which is based on a story which was related by Plutarch. But the idea is that if you have a ship and you've replaced all of the parts, the mast, the sails, the planks, is that still the same ship?
1: okay. Roman this is not the ship of Theseus. This is the trigger's broom phenomenon. <laughs> There's a the difference between you and I.
0: But look, the point is that if you've got a product where all of the components are not made in the country in which the company's based, the US, is it still a US product? Because as you say, the company's headquartered in the US. A lot of their design is done in the US.
1: Well, it's a hybrid, isn't it? Let's be honest. But it's really the question of where is the value added? And I think you could make the case with someone like Apple that the value is in the patents and the design. Obviously, the supply chain and the manufacturing in China is incredibly difficult to do, and you probably couldn't do it anywhere else. But what makes Apple Apple is its design, its brand, isn't it? It's seen as an American brand, and that's kind of a key part of its appeal around the world. And I guess the implication of this question in a bigger sense is that, okay, Apple is listed in the U.S. market. And when we buy a U.S. tracker fund, we're buying a bit of Apple. But when we buy a Chinese fund or a European fund, we're not buying a bit of Apple. And does that really make sense? Like given that Apple is exposed around the world and what is it that makes it American? Well, there's a few things, I think. So from a corporate point of view, it's primarily regulated in the U.S., It reports in US dollars and is affected by FX moves. We've seen that recently where Apple is actually forecasting a 5% impact from the strong dollar, which, you know, is significant to its earnings. And it's obviously subject to US tax law. So it had this problem for a long time where it had a massive amount of its profits held as cash overseas, which it couldn't repatriate to the US, or at least it couldn't do it cheaply because of US tax law. And then under the Trump administration in 2018, Apple was actually able to move a large amount of money back, something like $250 billion worth of cash and pay a one-off tax bill because they lowered the corporate tax rate and it became efficient for it to do it. So there's all these reasons why it is a US company and is, I think, best thought of as a US company. And it's also the fact that regulators around the world see Apple as a US company and are probably more likely to target as a foreign company, right? And, you know, Google, these they see them as foreign entities operating in their country.
0: Do you agree with all that? Yeah, I guess I I certainly agree with the kind of regulatory side. I think that makes a big difference because what actually goes into the design and also the kind of feel of the phone, you know what I mean? It's kind of like it's an American feeling product. That's the way people think of it.
1: I kind of think of it like McDonald's as well. If you go into a McDonald's in Germany, you know you're in an American (laughs) restaurant, right? You're not thinking, oh, this is a bit German. Where's my Frankfurter?
0: Although they do do regional food, don't they?
1: I know, it makes me sick. If I'm going into a McDonald's, (laughs) I want Ronald McDonald to hand me a hamburger. And I guess the big question here is when you look at something like the S&P 500, some people say, if you hold that, you know it's just 500 american companies but that it's already internationally diversified because it makes so much money abroad you're exposed to the global economy with just that and you have the benefit of strong american regulation of those companies
0: the regulation argument i think is a valid one but if you look at the revenue for us companies 60% of the revenue for the s&p 500 comes from the us so it is primarily a domestic index
1: yeah and the other point is it won't always outperform the global markets like it has done in recent years
0: No, if you look back in time, since 1975, the US has outperformed the rest of the world about 55% of the time. And the times when it underperforms, the times when it has a lost decade, is usually like now, when it's really expensive relative to the rest of the world.
1: Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr
0: at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Ramin Nakiza
1: and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.